uh, we're stepping away uh, just for today from our series in 1 Corinthians to, uh, to consider uh, Psalm chapter 2. So please turn there with me. Uh, I think this is a timely psalm. I think I said a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at Psalm 88 in the evening that there's a psalm for everything. And uh, we will certainly see that to be the case this morning in the midst of all of the the tension and turmoil uh, throughout our land, no matter what is going on around us. And indeed, no matter who is in the White House or no matter who controls Congress and no matter what sort of political unrest we see happening in our land, this psalm reminds us that God is in charge and that Jesus Christ is King. And He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that is a timely assurance, is it not? Now let's be honest. If we, if we do take a, a look uh, at our country, there are legitimate reasons for concern. Many are recognizing at this point that public discourse, which is so important and fundamental to a society functioning as it should, is in shambles. Um, basic civility seems to be lost. I was reading through a report from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission this week, uh, which they recently published on the state of public discourse in our country. And uh, interviewees said, said this about the American public square. These are some of the descriptions that they used. Uh, compromised, confrontational, corrosive, demoralizing, discordant, dismal, dispiriting, divided, dysfunctional, emotionally exhausting, a frenzy of political rage, hostile, heated, inflammatory, low, nasty, polarized, and it keeps going. We just got to the letter P, but I think you get the point. That's depressing and accurate enough. In short, it's a dumpster fire. One person went on to say in in their uh, interview Uh, He believes that many people in America right now exist in a state of fear. I think that's a very insightful uh, comment. Many people don't, maybe don't recognize it, but a lot of folks are are gripped with fear and anxiety. And I'm not speaking only about, you know, unbelievers. I'm, I'm speaking about Christians as well. Some have been fearful for the last four years, wondering how, the president's bombastic rhetoric might have negative consequences. And many are fearful about the future in light of significant changes in political power and and what it could mean for churches, uh, for for Christians seeking to faithfully follow Jesus in their daily lives. And, And let's be sure, many, many Christians have experienced these concerns and anxieties simultaneously. But whatever our concerns may be, This psalm, I think, steadies the people of God with the truth that God reigns over the nations. So, while concern for this country is understandable and even can can be considered a virtuous thing, right? After all, we are to to love our neighbor, to be good citizens, to to pursue the, the welfare of the people and the city around us. While concern is warranted and good, It need never be driven by fear because God reigns over the nations and His Son has authority over them all. 
Now, before we, we go ahead and read Psalm 2, I just want you to notice that there is something uh, important about uh, Psalms 1 and 2 that they, they share in common. Just at a glance, if you look over Psalm 1, 2, and then 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, and so forth, you'll notice that the difference with those other Psalms after Psalm 2 is that they all have titles. They all have headings. Some of them giving you, you know, the historical context of the psalm. Some giving instructions to uh, the choir master. But Psalms 1 and 2 don't, do not have any title. And the reason for that, I think, is that in the book of Psalms, in the Psalter, Psalms 1 and 2 are the title. Psalms 1 and 2, uh, as it were, are a gateway into the entire Psalter. They orient you to some of the big themes and big ideas that you're going to find through all 150 psalms. So think about it. The first psalm speaks about uh, the way of life versus the way of rebellion uh, against God, the way of the world. So it sets before us these two paths, one being life in covenant with God, the second being life in rebellion against God. And then Psalm 2 speaks about the, the divine king who is set up to reign in God's kingdom over the nations of the earth. And these two themes then of living in covenant with God by grace and of God establishing His kingdom so that the the nations come to worship and serve Him are really two primary themes that we find dominating the whole Psalter. And you could expand that and say that these twin themes dominate the entire Old Testament, indeed the entire Bible. Jesus Christ is the one who establishes His covenant with His people by His own blood. And Jesus Christ is the one who, is, uh, who establishes the kingdom of God and rules over the nations. And so, while this psalm may have been in its historical context, a what we might call today a coronation psalm for a, a king of Israel, we have to go beyond that and say, take any king of Israel. Take, take King Solomon. Right? Israel at the height of its power and glory and influence in the world, and he doesn't even come close to fulfilling the promises that we find here in Psalm 2. Because the king of this psalm is invited by God to come and to ask for the nations as his heritage, the the ends of the earth as his possession. Now, that should have our minds running ahead and asking, does the Bible help us answer the question, who is this individual? And of course, the answer is yes. We can can run ahead to the, the first book in the New Testament and recall the words of Jesus Christ just before his ascension. And he's commissioning his apostles. And what does he say to them? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of the nations. And so, the New Testament helps us to understand that the king of this psalm is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, one other thing to say here before we read. A helpful way to read many psalms and this psalm in particular, is to ask the question, who is speaking here? Whose voice 
do I hear? And when, when we ask that question and read through Psalm 2, what we find is we actually hear four different voices speaking. Psalm 2 breaks down nicely into four stanzas, three verses each. And in each stanza, we hear a different voice. And so in verses 1 through 3, we hear the voices of those who stand opposed to the Lord and His anointed. And then secondly, in verses 4 through 6, we, we hear the response of the Lord to that rebellion. And then in verses 7 through 9, we hear the voice of God's anointed, the Messiah, speak to tell us something we need to hear. And then finally, in the closing stanza, verses 10 through 12, the psalmist himself speaks as God's messenger. And we'll find that he's calling the nations to repentance and to seek refuge in God's king. And that's the outline that we're going to follow this morning as we walk through this psalm together. But before we read it, let's, uh, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help and blessing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, this is your word open before us, and we know that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so we, we pray now that you would, you would feed us and nourish us and strengthen us with the spiritual truth uh, contained in this psalm. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher and show us Jesus Christ as our risen and reigning King, the one who rules in grace and in justice. And we pray that you would plant these truths deep within our hearts that we might live in the light of them. To your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 2, uh, beginning in verse 1. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What should we do when the nations rage against God? What should our reaction be when we experience the, the rejection of the world as it stands opposed to the Lord and His Christ? What's our response 
as we live in a culture that increasingly is seeking to break the bonds of God's rule? Those are timely questions, aren't they? Because we do find ourselves living in a culture that is rejecting God's ways. But as Christians are are seeing this take place, I think they are responding in in a variety of ways. Some are are reacting uh, in this way, with, with, uh, with despair and fear about the future. They're gripped with anxiety about what the future may hold. They're worried about what might be coming next. But another way uh, is some Christians are are getting angry and bitter. And often this comes out in all they can talk about. The only thing they're thinking about is political things. Political discussions. And the anger and the bitterness seeps through. But neither of those reactions are the, are the reactions that I think God wants us to have. To, to know the response that we should have, we need, we need Psalm 2. Because Psalm 2 gives us a view of the world that every Christian needs. It tells you how to understand the times. And the first thing this psalm is, is going to help us come to terms with is that we should not be shocked by rebellion against God because this is not anything new. This is not something that has never happened before. It was happening in the Old Testament. It was happening in the New Testament. It was happening during the days of the apostles and the early church through the patristic period, down through the Middle Ages and the Reformation to today, and it will continue to go on. It's not anything new. And it doesn't catch God off guard. But God also doesn't want us to be caught off guard by it either. So he gives us this psalm. So let's take a look at this psalm to see how God wants us to to understand the times. And again in verses 1 through 3, first of all, we hear the voices of those opposed to the Lord and his anointed. So take a look again at verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, just focus in on the action words in those two verses because they tell you, I think, in a nutshell, the world's attitude toward God. They rage, they plot, they set themselves up, and they take counsel together. And if you're looking at it in an ESV Bible, you'll, you'll notice that there's a footnote with a, an alternative reading for the word rage. And it says that the nations noisily assemble together. So the picture here is of, of the noise and restlessness of a world in rebellion. I think it's probably safe to say that every generation of believers has seen a time in their lives or perhaps the duration of their lives as uh, an opportunity for them to say, Psalm 2 perfectly describes the world today. It is certainly true today, isn't it? The nations are raging. Leaders are setting themselves up and people are plotting. But notice it's, it's not just that the nations are raging and plotting against other people. 
Right? It's, not that, it's not just that nations are conspiring against one another. No, the real issue that is identified here in Psalm 2 is that ultimately all of this is being done against the Lord and against His anointed one. And so the psalmist wants us to see that what lies at the root of, of all of the raging and the scheming and the plotting at the root of it all is a heart in opposition to God. See, the nations of the world share this in common. And my friends, this country is not a special case. It's not in a special class of its own. It, it belongs to this co- cohort of nations who are scheming. And the thing at the root of it all is hearts raging against the Lord. That is why, Psalm 2 is teaching us, that is why there is so much restlessness in the world as people are seeking to break the bonds of God's rule and go their own way. And so if you're going to play you know, a, a, psalm, a song to Psalm 2, uh, I, I think you've, you've got to play initially in this first stanza one of those classical songs that puts you at edge, right? that makes you feel a little bit uneasy um, because th- that's what the Psalm 2 is describing here. The, the world is, is filled with people who are trying to establish their own authority and their own kingdom. And we, all, we know that. We, we see it every day. But Psalm 2 helps us see below the surface of all of the clamor, all of the striving, all of the restlessness of this world, underneath it all is a heart in opposition to the Lord and His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the reason for the restlessness. And that's why the the voices of the world tragically go on to say then in verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. See, the, the picture there is, is of the nation saying, we are going to throw off your reign, God, and we're going to run things ourselves once we get you out of the picture. We're going to have it our way. They're saying together, let's shatter into pieces God's rule over our lives, burst free from the authority of God so that we can finally be happy and free. Now, the lie of that was exposed, wasn't it? Just as we confess our faith together a few minutes ago, because at the end of the day, all they are is angry and restless and unsatisfied and unhappy. And you'll notice as well that all of this raging, all of this scheming is in the end utter vanity. It's pointless. It's futile. See, brothers and sisters, Psalm 2, it needs to shape your thinking about the world. I've had, uh, I just had this, this past week a conversation with a, a fellow pastor over the phone and, and uh, he, he asked me, hey, have you, you know, been in conversation with folks from church? How are they feeling right now in the midst of that's all going, that's everything that's going on uh, in our country? And he was trying to get a gauge of, of if his experience pastorally was unique or representative of what many other pastors are experiencing because he was sensing that many of the people he ministers to are fearful, are are gripped with fear. We might even say in a state of anxiety about the future. And 
it sounds as though they, that some folks are nearly in a state of panic due to current events. Now, hear me clearly. I am not trying to downplay the significance of the times in which we find ourselves. But dear brothers and sisters, our confidence and our security does not reside in the affairs of this country. Does it? Our confidence and our security does not reside in what happens in this country. It doesn't depend upon who's in office. It doesn't depend upon earthly political power at all. Instead, it is grounded in the sovereign God whom we trust and serve. This psalm tells us rules over the nations by the agency of the Son. And so do you see that the view Psalm 2 gives us as believers in Jesus Christ? The psalmist started with a question, why the nations rage? And that, that why carries over into the next phrase because all this striving against the Lord is in vain. It's empty, it's worthless, it's futile. Living a life of rebellion against God is futile because God is not, he's not in a state of panic about what is going on in his world. He's, he's not at a loss as to why the nations are assembled together against him. He's not up there in the heavens wondering what he is going to do in order to bring an end to all of this clamor. In fact, the next section, it gives us a glimpse into heaven to see the Lord's reaction to all of this. And so in verses 4 through 6, we hear the response of the Sovereign Lord. If we didn't know what this song goes on to say, it might catch us by surprise. What is, God's, what is God doing? What is his response to the world's raging? Is he, is he anxious? Is he worked up? Is he worried? Is he trying to figure out what he's going to do in response? No, this psalm says he's laughing. He's laughing at us. It's all so absurd, the psalm is teaching us. He looks at the nations assembled against him, and he laughs, and as the psalmist puts it, he holds them in derision. See, the world, in all of its breathtaking pride and displays of power, God looks at it, and he laughs. It brings to my mind the story of the Tower of Babel when people come together to make a place and a name for themselves. And the story tells us that God has to come down to look, to look at their work together. But you see, from our perspective, it can be terrifying sometimes, can it? Put yourself for a moment in the, the shoes of the apostles and think about how they must have felt when they saw Jesus put to death. When they saw him crucified and condemned as, as a common criminal. I'm sure that they were terrified as they saw the nations raging against the Lord and his anointed. And remember that Psalm 2 is precisely the lens through which they were understanding their experience. But you see from God's perspective, what is it like? The nations raging and plotting is... A laughable affair. It's, uh, it's kind of like a toddler. Eli is trying this occasionally right now. And you 
tell him it's time to go take a nap or go do something and he doesn't want to do it, he throws himself on the floor and he has a little tantrum. And, you know, as a parent, you're looking down at that and part of you kind of chuckles, right? Because it's so absurd. I know all I have to do is pick him up and take him to his room. He doesn't stand a chance, right? He's, he's completely outmatched. And that's how it is with the nations rebelling against God. It's like a bunch of toddlers saying together, we don't have to listen to you, God. We're going to show you because we know better. And there's really no way to put this nicely or to sugarcoat it. If that is what you think of your puny rebellion against God, he laughs at you. It is laughable that his creatures think that they could make their own rules and find their own meaning and purpose in life, as if they were self-determined, self-defining creatures. We think God ought to conform to, to our standards, and it makes him laugh as if we were going to kick the God of the universe off of the throne. We are like a bunch of ants who are trying to build and establish our own kingdom. And all, of it, all it takes is one sweep of a foot and it all comes crashing to the ground. God is not threatened by human revolt. And so the psalmist is helping us see here and take in and see the world in the light of the bigger picture. These people are raging in their hearts against God and the Lord sits in the heavens and he is in complete control. And he is undisturbed. And in the midst of it all, you and I can be secure. Because God is secure in the heavens. And so we need Psalm 2, dear friends, to be our worldview, don't we? We need to see our world, this world, the times in which we live through this lens. We live in a world that will rage against God in all kinds of different ways. But all the while, our God sits in the heavens and he even laughs at the futility of it all. His people remain secure because their God is secure in the heavens and because he is sovereign over it all. And so friends, don't, don't get shaken up with all of the raging and turmoil we see happening around us right now. God is in complete control. And what does God go on to do? Take a look then at verse 6. The Lord says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now there's a wonderful surprise in this verse as redemptive history unfolds. Jesus is the king spoken of here. But how has God set him up as king on Mount Zion? The answer of the gospel is by way of the cross, isn't it? By Jesus coming as a man, being born of woman, being born of the line of David. But the cross is where on Mount Zion the Lord Jesus was crucified and then He was raised as Lord and Savior and he was set up to be the king of a kingdom that would extend to the four corners of the earth. And his reign will last longer than any earthly kings. That's why 
uh, in 1 Corinthians. We saw early on in our study of 1 Corinthians, Paul rejoicing in what the people of this world to consider to be foolishness and weakness. The foolishness and weakness, the scandal of the cross, as Paul calls it. God shows and displays His mighty power. And this is so important for us to understand, dear brothers and sisters. Not by displays of human power or displays of earthly political authority. What seems in the eyes of the world as being impressive. But instead, He displays His power by using what is considered to be weak and utter foolishness. In the eyes of the world. By way of the cross. By way of the crucifixion. Of Jesus Christ. God destroys. The wisdom of man. And he establishes. His everlasting kingdom. Through Jesus Christ. Through his humiliation. And his exaltation. And it's this gospel. It's this good news. Which we must never lose sight of. And we must never lose confidence in. Yes, the nations are raging. The people are plotting in vain. But friends, the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the world makes of God and his word. God is still sovereign. Jesus is still the resurrected and reigning king. And so the nations rage. And the sovereign Lord responds. And then in the third stanza, verses 7 through 9, we we hear the anointed Son, the Messiah, speak. So God the Father was the one speaking in verse 6. But notice that there is now another voice, and it is the voice of the Lord's King. And here is what he he has to tell us. He wants to tell you about the eternal, eternal and unchangeable decree of God. That should interest us. He tells us about the purposes of God for human history. And listen to what the Messiah says. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You see, here's what Christ is saying. Here's what I want you to understand, people. That uh, I want you to understand this about the Father's plan. I, I asked for something. And here is what he gave. God appointed me as Lord of the nations. My, my rule extends to the ends of the earth. And I asked him to give me something. I asked him to give me uh, an inheritance. I asked him to give me men and women and boys and girls from every tribe, tongue and people. And so I want us to just stop there for a moment and think about Christ's inheritance. When Christ asked the Father for an inheritance, we need to understand that he was not merely asking for people in the abstract. But dear believer, he was asking for you. He was asking for you. He was saying, Father, I want them. I want them to be my own. I want them to be with us. I want them to be saved. I want them to be spared from judgment and hell. I want them to dwell with us forever. And the Father's answer is yes. 
See, the psalm is saying that Jesus asked to have his people as a part of his inheritance as king. And the father said, yes, my son, they will be yours. You see, it's so important for us then in light of that to also remember as we see the nations raging and plotting against the Lord, that was us. That's who we were apart from the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. We were rebels clamoring against God. One one commentator on Psalm 2 said, when when this psalm was written, our ancestors were wandering around in northern Europe or some other part of the earth, killing each other and worshiping idols. And now here we are, 3,000 years later, bowing the knee to King Jesus, worshiping the true God. What happened? Well, not something in us. That's not the answer. Not something special about us. The answer is Jesus' request was answered. He has received and is receiving his inheritance. That's what has happened. We were part of the nations raging against God, but then Jesus saved us and he brought us into his kingdom. And notice, dear friends, that has implications for how we now live in this world. Because he commissions us to tell others about him, to speak to the nations of the earth. And that's exactly the flow that we see happening here in this psalm, isn't it? In the final stanza in verses 10 through 12, the psalmist speaking on behalf of the king. And I want to remind us that as the, as the people of God, as, as an embassy of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, as the church, this is our charter. This is the mission that has been given to us. What we read here, it really should take us by surprise because we've heard from the nations and how they want to be rid of God. They're saying, we don't want anything to do with you, God. We've heard from God and we've heard from Christ. And now the psalmist speaks to the nations who are in rebellion against God and his Christ and he offers them terms of peace. He offers the nations rebelling against God, terms of peace with the Lord and his anointed. He says, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. You see, it's a call, isn't it, to stop raging against the son and instead to worship him. The Balbany. It's, it's remarkable. The same nations who raged against God, who are worthy of the king's wrath, are being offered salvation and peace through Jesus Christ. That is how gracious this king is. And the picture described here is of the kings of the earth, conquered kings, coming before the Lord Jesus, bowing before him and kissing his The early church understood this. As I said earlier, they saw what they were experiencing in the light of this psalm. They witnessed people conspiring together, didn't they? Against the Lord's anointed one. They witnessed the peoples putting him to death. But here's the key question that we need to ask ourselves. 
how did the early church, how did the apostles respond to that rebellion? Did they entrust themselves to some political power or authority to get the job done? Did they invest themselves in all kinds of political debate to, to see this is the way that the, the mission of the church is going to be advanced? Did they begin to obsess over the tyranny of the Roman Empire and how religious leaders had compromised with the world? No, they didn't do any of that, did they? What did they do instead? They preached the gospel of Psalm 2. That's what they did. They preached the gospel of Psalm 2. They said, the day of the king's wrath has not yet come. There is still time to turn to him and to find refuge. His heart is open to you in grace. Repent and believe the gospel and be saved. Lay down your arms and kiss the Son. That was the message that the church proclaimed to the world in rebellion against God. And dear friends, we need to remember that is our charter. We, we must always remember that while we are citizens of this particular earthly kingdom, that by God's grace we have been made citizens and ambassadors of another kingdom that will never end. And the king of that kingdom has given to us, he has entrusted to us a message to proclaim. And so we mustn't get so caught up and bound up in the politics of this age that it begins to set the agenda or causes us to lose sight of the mission that our Lord Jesus has given to us. You see, our, our message and mission, at the end of the day, it's, it's simple and clear. As a church, we are an embassy of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ here on earth. And together, we serve him as ambassadors of the king. And we are here right now in this place to call people to, to bow the knee to the king. A king who is, who is not harsh and just waiting to dash them into pieces. But a king who laid down his life in order that the peoples of the world could be saved and take refuge in him. You see, it's a sobering truth, but it is a... It is a truth nonetheless that, that at the end of the day there really are only two options. You can come and in the language of Psalm 2 you can come and kiss the feet of the king in love and out of gratitude for what he has done for you in his saving mercy. Or you can be crushed underneath his feet as the Lord makes all of his enemies to be a footstool for his feet. Or to use the language of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. And he says that every, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day you will do that. And you will, you will, you will either do it with knee bowed and joy flowing out of your heart. Or you will do it with knee bowed, confessing it through gritted teeth. There's no, there's no third party. Christ shall have dominion. And we will either find refuge in him. Or we will find no refuge from him. 
You think of the, the imagery that we have in the book of Revelation of the kings of the earth running into the mountains and calling the rocks to fall down upon them and crush them and to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. And so the psalmist says, in light of this king's grace and the terms of peace that he offers to you, he's saying, lay down your arms in hostility and come and kiss the Son and know that you are forgiven and pardoned. Come and find rest in the midst of a world filled with restlessness. You see, in the midst of all of the scheming, all of the raging, all of the clamor, God's people can live in peace. Because God is sovereign. Because Jesus Christ is seated upon the throne and He is ruling over the nations. And so remember that question we asked at the start, what do we do when the nations rage against God? How does Psalm 2 help us answer that question? Well, we remember that God is sovereign. We remember that He has set His King in Zion who rules over all. We remember that Jesus Christ has purchased us as His inheritance, as His own possession. And then we remember as well that He has commissioned us to call the rebellious nations which we once belong to come and take refuge in this gracious King. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for uh, this, this particular psalm and how it speaks uh, into the moment in which we find ourselves. Lord, we pray once again that you would... Uh, Teach us these truths in such a way that they really do begin to transform our thinking and shape our living. May these realities uh, govern how we minister as a church and how we live as individuals. And when we are tempted to be fearful about the future, fearful of uh, governing authorities and what is to come, we pray that we would find rest and peace in this reality that you are undisturbed, you are seated in the heavens, you are reigning and ruling over it all, and you are working all things together for the good of your people. We thank you that Jesus Christ has come and purchased us as his inheritance, and now we pray that you would equip us and strengthen us by the Spirit of Christ to be faithful to this charter, to call the nations of the earth to seek refuge in the Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.